12 through 17, Christ cleanses the temple, is what I've titled the message here. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to teach accurately and clearly in a way that exalts uh, the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right. The theme of uh, the book of Matthew is Christ the King. And uh, we have worked our way down through the book to that section in chapters 21 through 23, uh, the formal rejection of the king. And we come to what is commonly called Passion Week. Passion Week. The last week of Christ's earthly ministry. Now the week began in earnest with what is commonly called the triumphal entry, in which Christ, in precision fulfillment of prophecy to the very day, rode into Jerusalem on a young male donkey, which was his official presentation to the nation as their Messiah. And yet they did not really appreciate him for who he was as Messiah Lord. And to this day, the Jews continue to miss the reality of Jesus for who he is as their Messiah. They still, to this day, do not appreciate the official presentation that happened on that day we called the triumphal entry. Zvi was a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust who went on to become a strong believer in Jesus Christ. He lived in Jerusalem for many years and was a vibrant witness, therefore, the Messiah. Constantly witness to fellow Jews. Well, one time he tells the story about how he went to an ultra-Orthodox synagogue. And there they was presented a picture of a rabbi riding on a big lion, claiming that he was the Messiah. Well, Zvi uh, challenged the rabbi at the synagogue, and he said, Where is it written that the Messiah will come on a lion? And the rabbi said, How do you know it's not the truth? And Zvi said, Quote, I opened my Bible to Zechariah 9.9 and read it in Hebrew to the rabbi and to all who were with him. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. You know, Jewish pride would really like him to come on a lion. But he came on a donkey. And Zvi then told them, I believe only what is written in the Holy Bible not in fables. Well, this is the glory of Jesus Christ. He came fulfilling exactly what is written in the prophetic scriptures like no other, like no other has ever done, proving that he indeed is the one and only true Messiah. And indeed, he came riding on a young male donkey. Well, Matthew 21 presents five key events in the Jerusalem area related to Passion Week, the last week, and uh, note, we talked about uh, the triumphal entry last week, tonight, uh, this morning, uh, the cleansing of the temple in verses 12 through 17. And then, of course, followed by the uh, lesson of the fig tree, uh, conflict over Christ's authority, and then some parables to uh, round out the chapter uh, indicting Israel's religious leaders. Well, as we compare the synoptic gospels, it is clear that Matthew did not present a strictly chronological rendering of the events, but rather thematically presented what happened to make the points that he wanted to make. Putting all the accounts together, it seems that this is more likely the actual order of events chronologically as presented in the Gospel of Mark. And so note on Sunday, we have the triumphal entry, and then Jesus weeps over Jerusalem as he is coming into the city. And then uh, Jesus enters and inspects the temple. Doesn't seem that he cleansed the temple on Sunday, but he did go there. And he did look around at some things, as we see in the Gospel of Mark. But then he returned to Bethany. And then on Monday, he cursed the fig tree, and then he cleansed the temple. And then he returned once again to Bethany. So it seems that Matthew jumps from the triumphal entry on Sunday to Jesus cleansing the temple on Monday. Thematically, this is the next great point of emphasis that he wants to make. Well, Monday through Thursday of Passion Week is prophetically significant. As seen in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 through 7, on the 10th day of the Passover month, each family was to select 
a Passover lamb. And they were to keep the lamb for four days, during which time they would thoroughly inspect it to make sure that it was, quote, without blemish. This four-day inspection period corresponds to the four days in Jerusalem, Monday through Thursday, prior to Christ's crucifixion, in which he was constantly challenged and tested by the religious leaders, but they really could find no fault in him. He was found to be completely without blemish and fully qualified to be the Passover lamb without blemish. Indeed, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now note there were actually two cleansing, two cleansings of the temple during Christ's earthly ministry. He cleansed it at the very beginning of his ministry, at the time of the first Passover in, in relationship to his ministry, as recorded in John chapter 2, and then again at the conclusion of his ministry, <clears throat> which also corresponded with Passover, as recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Now, keep in mind the thematic context and emphasis that Matthew is making. He is emphasizing that Christ is not merely a Messiah. Messiah simply means anointed one. It was various anointed kings and prophets and so forth in the Old Testament. But as the Messiah, he is the divine Messiah. The divine human Messiah being offered to Israel. The Messiah is Lord. Now, we saw this in reference to Jesus healing the two blind men on his way to Jerusalem. They recognized him as Messiah Lord, while the crowd merely recognized him as Jesus of Nazareth. We saw it in the triumphal entry. As Christ as Lord organized and orchestrated the event which Jerusalem in blindness cried out, Who is this? And the response of the multitudes was, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. They saw Jesus merely as a prophet. Well, now as we come to the four-day inspection period, we find over and over the emphasis is that Christ is on display showing that indeed he is Messiah Lord. Matthew begins by demonstrating that Jesus is Lord of the temple. Every Jew knew that when Messiah officially comes... He heads straight for the temple. And we see this, for example, in Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Of course, John the Baptist prepared the way. But then, the Lord whom you seek, now we're talking about the Lord, will come suddenly to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus coming suddenly to his temple at the very beginning of his earthly ministry was a partial fulfillment of this verse, which in effect was a clear signal that he was the Messiah now on the scene. Now at the end of his ministry, Jesus, at the time of his official presentation of himself as Messiah Lord, once again comes suddenly to his temple, this time signifying judgment that is coming upon Israel because of their rejection of him as Messiah. Introduced himself that way at the beginning of his ministry, provided all their credentials as seen in his ministry, climaxing the triumphal entry, and now as he comes, it's really signifying judgment as he cleanses the temple. Let's pick it up, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God, drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. Jesus came into the temple of God like he was God who owned the place, which was exactly the case. Uh, you see, he didn't come in gingerly or gently. He didn't come asking, sir, 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 sir I'm wondering if I could have a little uh, you know, leeway here, a little permission. No. He came with lordship authority. Remember, Malachi 3.1 says the Lord comes suddenly to his temple. This he did. It was his temple, and he came suddenly to it. Now, the temple is clearly the temple of God. At the time of the first cleansing, the Jews in John 2.18 said to him, quote, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? They were in effect asking, In doing this, who do you think you are? 
In effect, Jesus was saying, well, I just happen to be Messiah God, cleansing and taking back what rightfully belongs to me in keeping with prophecy. Since it is the temple of God and I am God, I have every right to do this. Note here, it says he drove out all those who bought and sold. Drove out is a very forceful term. Sometimes people paint a picture of Jesus as always being meek and mild. I mean, almost a weakling. Maybe just a little bit of feministic trait in him almost. Well, he was meek and mild and gentle. But this was the time for a show of his lordship authority. That's the issue here. And it was not passive or weak. There was no discussion. The terms overturned the tables and the seats indicates passion. I mean, things were flying. <laughs> I mean, he came in with authority. I mean, flipping the tables and throwing over the seats and driving out these people. Now, in reference to the first cleansing, the quota of Psalm 69.9 is brought in. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal, fiery passion. And that zeal had not subsided, but was as passionate as ever. And Mark adds this detail. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. <laughs> Nobody passing through here with the, you, you got your stuff? Nope. Not happening here. Not today. Jesus as Lord was clearly in charge of God's temple. His temple. And no one dared challenge him. I kind of like this meme here. If anyone ever asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. <laughs> I kind of like that. What would Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what he did when he came to the temple. It was passionate. It was lordship stuff. Now, we read a lot about long-suffering patience and self-control. In fact, self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. But there is a place for righteous anger. Sin angers God. And you know what? It should us as well. It says in Psalm 711, God is a just God, and God is angry with the wicked every day. John 3:36, who believes in the Son is everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Really, there's something spiritually wrong with people that are never angered by sin. Starting with their own. It's easy to be angry with other people's. I think it starts with our own. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Now, indeed, it says, do not sin. But it also says, be angry. Now, we must make sure our anger is controlled. But I think there's a place for righteous anger. I agree with Charles Spurgeon, who said... A vigorous temper is not altogether an evil. Men who are easy as an old shoe are generally of little worth. I think he was on to something there. Uh, this needs to be qualified, but G.K. Chesterton said, Tolerance is a virtue for those who have no convictions. In a qualified sense, that's true. Spurgeon again said, bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited by cowards. Remember in the Old Testament when Israel began to commit immoral idolatry with pagan, the pagan women of Moab back in Numbers 25? Well, in that context, one of the Israelites became so brazen in his sin that he actually brought a pagan Midianite woman right into the midst of the camp of Israel, right in the sight of Moses. Phinehas, the son of Aaron, the high priest, saw it. And he went after that couple with a javelin. And he went right into their tent, thrusting them both through with the javelin, thus ending the plague. Well, what did God say? No, 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 nasty, nasty, nasty. No, God appreciated this holy zeal. 
Now, indeed, we're in the Old Testament. We're not in the New Testament. But there's some application. Uh, Phineas, notice Numbers 25, verse 11. Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the, high, uh, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of, of an everlasting priesthood. Because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. I submit to you, it's nothing spiritual to be just totally passive about, you know, flagrant sin. Oh, well, we're just very loving folks. You know, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for not disciplining flagrant sin in their midst. And the concern for the people of God is not the world. We're not here to straighten out the world. We are here to be a holy people of God and to be a a wholesome influence as far as sharing the gospel with those around us. But we are a holy family. We are called to holiness. Now, the temple was a large complex of buildings covering approximately 35 acres. The word temple is the Greek word hieron, uh, which refers to the greater complex generally. Uh, The word hieron refers to what is called the outer temple, while the Greek word naos refers to the inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies. By the way, as a footnote here, uh, the church corporately and the believer individually in 1 Corinthians are both referred to as the naos of God, referring to God's innermost holy sanctuary. Think of it. That's what, that's what the church is. As the temple of God today, we are the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. But in view here with Jesus cleansing the temple is the outer temple area. And most all commentators think that more specifically what is in view, what is called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. Now, you understand the Jews had a very low view of Gentiles. So the court of the Gentiles, in their minds, was a fitting place for this kind of activity. Uh, After all, it was just the court of the Gentiles, and they were unclean anyway. I mean, if you allow Gentiles into the court, I mean, what's that do for the court? That was their attitude. But Jesus had another attitude, a holy attitude that held the whole entire temple complex should be treated as holy, including the court of the Gentiles. There was a place for all peoples, for all nations. So just a little overview as far as what we're talking about, uh, the temple of Jesus' day. Uh, You had this large area out here, the the court of the Gentiles, both sides here. And then, of course, the, the the women's court. And then uh, the court of Israel where the men could go. And then you had uh, the altar. And then you had the holy place. And of course the most uh, holy of holies in the the innermost part there. So uh, we're talking about this taking place in this large area out here. Where they were buying and selling. uh, Turning into a marketplace. A little bit of background here. The priesthood at this point was controlled by the wealthy Sadducees. And they also controlled the temple. And they got rich off of it. You see, the Sadducees were wickedly liberal, rejecting the idea of the supernatural, denying the truth of the resurrection, of resurrection generally. And they didn't believe in the afterlife. And with that kind of theology, you can see that they were locked into a theology of your best life now. Right? Yeah, they were. Their lives revolved around power and money involving the control of the temple as well as as that of the Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. Now, these religious leaders hated Jesus. Some of the Pharisees got saved. We have a record of it. But we have no record of any of the Sadducees who controlled the temple ever getting saved. This was about power and control of the temple. And the Sadducees had the the leading control, the leading power, and they were making money off of it. And they were living for now. That's consistent with their theology. Well, Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the temple. And the Sadducees claimed it as their own. So the showdown was on. 
Jesus was rightly claiming to be the Lord of his temple. But the chief priests and their minions didn't appreciate it. Now, the common Roman currency had idolatrous images on it, stamped on it. So the Jews considered it unworthy to be used in paying the temple tax or being used as an offering. Therefore, these money changers, for a hefty fee, were willing to, you know, help the worshipers. You know, they're all about helping people, right? Helping them to their money. Uh, They were willing to exchange these pagan coins for an acceptable currency at the temple. Now, this was big business, very lucrative. And, of course, the high priest family would get a cut of everything. You see... Jesus was a threat to their business, to both their position of power and their financial interests. I mean, this is bad for business when you have people being run out of the, out of the temple, you know. Get, your, get, your, get out of here, you merchants. I mean, this is not good for business. You understand. This is, this is, uh, this is certainly, uh, you know, kind of a, a downturn on your best life now. This is, this is not good. These merchants in the outer temple area offered kosher animals to those who had traveled a long distance and uh, who needed to secure a sacrifice. The poor who could not afford a lamb could buy a dove. But again, evidently, all these were sold at marked-up prices, which really amounted to a form of robbery. What this amounted to was marketing the temple. In effect, they turned the temple into a marketplace, into an animal market was hardly an environment for prayer and worship. There was no reverence for God on display here. Rather, it took on the commotion of bleeding sheep, cooing birds, and the hustle and bustle of buying and selling at the stockyard. Well, this activity of Jesus cleansing the temple clearly demonstrated that he was here as one greater than the temple, as stated in Matthew 12, 6. And that he indeed was here dealing with what he termed as my house in verse 13. Well, the religious leaders became inflamed. And at Christ's trial, his action and words regarding the temple became a primary basis for the charges raised against him. Verse 13. And he said to them, he gives the reason why he's doing this here. And he said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Here Jesus, in effect, tells them why he is doing this. In effect, saying that he is cleansing the place that is to be a place of prayer, but which they had turned into a den of thieves, exploiting the people, making money off of religious things, the sacrifices. Now, here in verse 13, Jesus makes a composite quote from two Old Testament sources, namely from Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. So he combines these two uh, prophecies in the Old Testament. Isaiah 56, 7, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in, the, in my house of prayer. There we have the temple being called a house of prayer. Uh, Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here's what Jesus locks into in terms of application. This verse. And then in Jeremiah 7, 11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have seen it, says the Lord. Again, Jesus quotes from this text as well. He combines the two. And although Matthew abbreviates it, the full quote from Isaiah 56, 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, is quoted in Mark eleven seventeen. So it was indeed quoted in full, making the point that the temple, including the court of the Gentiles, was all sacred. And that the whole entire complex, temple complex, was to be revered as a place of prayer. And to make matters worse, the merchants were guilty of extortion in taking advantage of the people, including the poorest of the people who would have to buy doves because they couldn't afford anything else. Thus they were robbing the people through exorbitant fees, thus in effect turning the temple into a den of thieves. Now thieves would commonly hide out in caves or dens thinking they were safe there. 
In Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah brought a strong sermon of rebuke at the gate of the temple. He rebuked them for their false mantra of security. You see, the Jews, if you go back to Jeremiah 7 and verse 4, what they were saying was uh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, claiming, you know, we have immunity here. God would never do anything in terms of destroying his temple. They kind of saw it as a a sort of lucky charm, hiding behind the idea that God would never allow the temple to be destroyed, and therefore hiding in the security of the temple, even though they were living very wicked lives. This is what these religious merchants and spiritual leaders were doing. They were thinking they were safe in hiding behind the security of the temple. Kind of a den, but it's a den of thieves. They were guilty of two great errors. Number one, they had turned God's place of prayer into a marketplace. And number two, they were guilty of robbing the people. By the way, by way of application, marketing the ministry is never right. It's always offensive to God. Instead of a place of prayer, they had turned it into a place of thievery. Instead of God-oriented worship, it was now all about man-centered extortion. Note Jesus in cleansing the temple referred to it as my house, which is clearly equating himself with God as the temple clearly was God's house. Now, so often in Jesus' ministry, he would say, it is written. And then with accurate precision, make just the right application of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, in his state of humility, mastered the scriptures and applied them masterfully to specific situations and needs. Warren Wiersbe says, when he called it my house of prayer, he was quoting Isaiah 56, 7. The entire 56th chapter of Isaiah denounces the unfaithful leaders of Israel. The phrase den of robbers comes from Jeremiah 7, 11, and is a part of a long sermon that Jeremiah delivered in the gate of the temple, rebuking the people for the same sins that Jesus saw and judged in his day. Truly, Jesus lived his life through the lens of the inspired scriptures, properly applying it to the context of every situation he dealt with. Thus, he is the ultimate example for all of us. Jesus lived his life and ministry through the prism of it is written. Verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him. He's driving out the money changers and those that are marketing the temple. But then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, under legalistic Judaism, the blind and the lame were largely restricted in relation to the temple complex. We see them begging outside the temple. On the way to the temple, they'd pass by these beggars, but they were restricted. But Jesus is greater than the temple, and he received them there and healed them. The temple was to be a place of prayer and healing, but they turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus, as the Lord of the temple, restored it to its rightful use. This is the last mention of Jesus' healing ministry during his time on earth, and it happened at the temple, the place of intimate contact with God, a place where all people were to be allowed to approach God with their needs. What a contrast. Jesus genuinely cared about people, even the weakest and the most infirm, even those that were considered outcasts in Israel, while the religious leaders cared only about themselves, lining their pockets at the expense of the people. What a contrast. The religious hucksters were expelled, but the needy who truly sought the Lord were welcomed. And in this context of contrasting characters, the religious leaders were plotting to put Jesus to death in spite of all the evidence that he was indeed the divine Messiah with impeccable character. This healing of the blind and the lame was another further undeniable evidence that Jesus was indeed the son of David, the Messiah, doing kingdom miracles as prophesied in the Old Testament. I mean, you had very specific prophecies in relationship to the kingdom. We have this kingdom prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb sing for, the, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This left the religious leaders totally without excuse. They just didn't want to see the facts. But it was there as plain as it could be. 
You had to be willfully blind not to see it. And that's where they were. Verse 15. But, in contrast, but's a contrast word. In contrast to the, the blind and the lame, the needy, who are coming and looking to Jesus as the Messiah who can save, who can heal. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! They were indignant. The chief priests were those who controlled the temple, and the scribes were the religious experts who could draft legal documents such as marriage certificates, mortgages, sale of the land, etc. These scribes really functioned as religious lawyers. And these key religious leaders saw the wonderful things that Jesus did. They saw the wonderful work of Jesus cleansing the temple, although they considered it anything but wonderful. They saw the blind and the lame healed, and they did not deny it, by the way. It was undeniably wonderful. And they heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. They saw all of this. They saw the wonderful uh, works of the Messiah, but rejected the messianic tribute being applied to him in the form of Hosanna to the Son of David. They all knew Hosanna was a takeoff of Psalm 118, 25, and 26. You see, Hosanna literally means save now. And uh, it really is the idea of referring to the Messiah as the Savior who comes in the authority and power of the Lord to save. And that reference in Psalm 118 specifically references the Messiah's coming to the house of the Lord. Or in reference to the house of the Lord. Notice Psalm 118, 25, 26. Save now. Uh, translate Hosanna. I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity, well-being. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Did you catch that? We have blessed you from where? From the house of the Lord. So we have a close tie to this psalm and this Hosanna emphasis that recognizes Jesus as the Lord who saves and, is to, and who is to be blessed from the house of the Lord, the very place where this was happening. He was being blessed from the house of the Lord right here, not by the religious leaders, but by the children. Those that really society looked down on and considered insignificant and unimportant. The implication was that Jesus was indeed Messiah Lord. It could not have been more clear. They should have made the connection between the messianic healing that just happened and the truth of who he was as Messiah. But they missed it. They should have connected the appropriateness of Christ being heralded as the Messiah in keeping with the praise being addressed to him through the prism of Psalm 118, which recognizes the Messiah as both Savior, save now, and Lord. But instead of appreciating this messianic truth that's in view, these religious leaders were indignant, which is to say they were very angry. Indignant is, is a word that means very angry. Truth makes those hostile to it angry. You know, until you come to repentance, you, you are uh, not a friend of God. You're an enemy with God, as, as Paul brings out in Romans. You're hostile, really. Now, it might be kind of subdued and quiet, but really there's a hostility towards God. And truth riles those in rebellion to the truth up. I, I often quote Luther. I always say he's quotable, but I totally reject his baptismal regeneration. But he is quotable. He said, uh, always preach in such a way that if the people listening do not come to hate their sin, they will instead hate you. <laughs> Thank you, Luther. <laughs> I was hoping to have a couple of friends at the end, but anyway... Uh, these religious leaders were really reacting to three things here. Number one, Jesus casting out those marketing in the temple, which they were profiting off of. This is bad for business. Number two, Jesus healing the, the blind and the lame. Where? In the temple! These people are not even supposed to be in the temple, according to Jewish thinking. And three, Jesus being praised as the Messiah with Hosanna to the son of David. All three of these tied to the truth of Jesus being the true Messiah. And this they could not handle. 
But the thing that really put them over the edge was the acclaim being given to Jesus in the temple of all places by the children that recognized Jesus as the son of David, which is to say the Messiah who is here to save. This incensed them because they considered it blasphemy. Such a thing was threatening to them. I mean, if Jesus was really the Messiah, that would mean we have to listen to him. It would mean he is truly in charge of the temple. This is his place. It's not ours. It is. We are completely out of line. We, are, we need to repent. That's what they should have said. It would mean everything changes in relation to their position of power and control. They absolutely refuse to accept that as a possibility. And so, verse 16, they said to him, Do you not hear what these are saying? You hear it? This is totally inappropriate. Do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise? So they come off challenging Jesus like they expect him to acknowledge that this recognition of him as the son of David, as the Messiah, is totally inappropriate. They were so convinced that he was not the Messiah because they didn't want it to be so that they even expected him to acknowledge it. However, in response to their question, Jesus simply said, Yes. Yes, he heard what the children were saying, and he embraced it. Jesus, in effect, affirmed them, calling him the son of David, indicating that indeed it was appropriate and true. Yes, he heard it, and he affirmed it. Then Jesus said something that clearly would have been insulting to these so-called masters of theology, who prided themselves on their knowledge of the scriptures, I mean, they were the esteemed experts in the word of God. He said to them, have you never read? Are you that slow? Are you that unlearned? Have you never read? That was insulting. It's like coming to me as a pastor who's been in the ministry for 37 years. Haven't you read? (laughs) It's a little different context, of course. But uh, what I'm saying is these people had all kinds of knowledge. Have you never read? They'd read the scriptures many times. They knew the Bible very well. After all, represented here were, you understand, the scribes. They were the recognized experts in the scriptures. Recall that when the wise men came to see Jesus after he was born, that Herod gathered together who? Well, the chief priests and the scribes. They were the very group that is now on the scene in Matthew 21. And when Herod asked them where the Christ was to be born, what did they say? You know, we'll go back and we'll study that and we'll figure it out and we'll get back to you. Is that what they said? No. Instantly, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, and quoted exactly where this prophecy was found as seen in Micah 5 too. Indeed, they intellectually knew the scriptures well. It's a great lesson, by the way. One can know the Bible very well and miss the obvious truth of it. Many of the so-called great leaders in Christendom, having all kinds of degrees in theology, don't really know the truth in a saving way. A.W. Tozer astutely said this, The devil is a better theologian than any of us and is a devil still. Yeah, the devil is a very good theologian. He knows the Bible very well. And he's really cocky about it. I mean, imagine coming to Jesus and trying to use the scripture to, in his temptation to make him fall. He's very cocky. One thing about the devil, he's very cocky. And so are those who are controlled by him. When Jesus says, have you never read? That really was a stinging rebuke. It was like saying, have you really missed this? Or you should know this. This should be obvious for those who have truly read and know the scriptures. And then he quotes what they should have recognized from Psalm 8. 
I think this draws them crazy when he's quoting scripture all the time. Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. The context of Psalm 8 is clearly addressed to the Lord. David begins the psalm by saying, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. And then he goes on to say, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. David is clearly addressing the Lord, Yahweh. And from there says that God has ordained praise be rendered to him out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. Now in Bible times, I always used to wonder about this, but in Bible times, children would often continue to be nursed up until age three or so. Therefore, they were commonly talking before the time they were actually weaned. So out of the mouth of these young children, God has ordained that praise be given to him. So Jesus takes their question, do you not hear what these are saying? And answers it with a scripture, namely Psalm 8, presenting children giving praise to God, which he shows is now properly to be applied to him. ESV Study Bible. Jesus acknowledges the children's praise and links it to Psalm 8-2, which the religious leaders should have known applied such praise to God thus confirming Jesus as the divine Messiah. Thus, Jesus saw this action in the temple by the children as the fulfillment of prophecy that shows that he as the Messiah in reality is God, who is worthy to be praised. Not only did Jesus not go along with these religious leaders' assessment, that he was not the Messiah, but to the contrary, he totally affirmed the Messianic praise given to him by the children as further affirmed by the prophetic scriptures. Now, the more these religious leaders sought to challenge the Messiahship of Jesus, the more he doubled down. And he did so with the scriptures. Every step of his life was the fulfillment of scripture. The Believer's Study Bible says Jesus demonstrates his complete familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures and shows how thoroughly he viewed all of life through the prism of the Holy Scriptures. And D.A. Carson says, the children's hosannas are not being directed to God, but to the Son of David, the Messiah. Jesus is therefore not only acknowledging his Messiahship, but justifying the praise of the children by applying to himself a passage of scripture applicable only to God. Did you catch that? These theologians would have caught this. That's talking about God. These children are giving praise to God. And now they're ascribing it to you. What? What is being said here? And note the reference Jesus quoted specifically from Psalm 8.2. Goes on to specifically make application to his enemies. Did you see that? Psalm 8, 2. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Why? Why? Because of your enemies. That you may silence the enemy and the avenger. What? God's going to use these little children to silence these? This praise to God from the mouths of children would serve to silence the enemy. And that fits the context here perfectly, by the way. Here Christ's enemies were challenging him. And the praise from the mouths of these children in the fulfillment of Psalm 8-2 serves to silence them. You know what? There is no recorded response from them. Is there? No, no, there's no recorded response. They think, oh yeah, Psalm 8, it does say that. They didn't know what to say. It all fit perfectly. Christ's wonderful works. The children's words of praise, it all harmonized perfectly with Scripture. The obvious truth was that Jesus was truly the Messiah. It was so powerful that it reduced these critics to momentary silence. They had nothing to say. Although they didn't accept it, they couldn't refute it. A footnote here, just a quick footnote. It is interesting to note that not only did Christ apply Psalm 8 to himself... But so did 
other New Testament writers. Three times in the New Testament epistles, Christ is linked to Psalm 8, as seen in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, Ephesians 1, 1 through 22, and Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. Thus, the point is duly established that Jesus is the Lord of Psalm 8, to whom praise is worthy to be attributed. And of course, this Psalm, Psalm 8, is really addressing how God has exalted man, which ultimately is realized in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, who is the champion for mankind. He is the God-man, worthy to be praised as Lord, or to put it another way, he is Messiah God. I love this about the children in this story here. Earlier we saw in Matthew 11, at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. You know, those that think they're so smart. And have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. God likes to take those that really think they're so smart and confound their supposed wisdom with such as little children. Well, these esteemed religious leaders in rejecting Christ as Messiah God did not even have the spiritual insight of the children who were receiving him. And so what happened? Well, Jesus left. Verse 17, then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. The official rejection of Jesus as evidenced by the nation's leadership resulted in Jesus leaving. Emphasis is placed on Jesus leaving as seen in the verbs, left them. And went out. At this point, Jesus, in in effect, forsook them and went outside the city and made his way back to Bethany. Now, Bethany was about two miles outside Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. Uh, Just a reminder of where we're going here. And this is where he would spend his evenings in that, that last Passion Week. He'd be in Jerusalem in the day, and then he'd make his way back to Bethany in the evening. And we see that that pattern going on consistently during Passion Week. Now, many believe he probably stayed in the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, as this family was especially close to Jesus and showed him great hospitality, as we have seen other uh, scripture references. However, as others point out that, you know, there's some other possibilities too in Bethany, like uh, Simon the leper uh, is also a, a possibility. Significantly, as I say, Jesus, during the last days of his life, did not spend his nights in the city of Jerusalem. You know, if you go to Israel and you visit Jerusalem, as we did one time, uh, you know where we ended up. The climax of our trip was Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem, and all roads lead to Jerusalem. This is the high point. This is the climactic point. And yet, Jesus did not spend his final evenings there. Jesus, Jerusalem is said to be the city of the great king. This is his city. This is God's favorite place in all the earth. Psalm 87. And yet, as the king was being officially presented to Israel, to Jerusalem, the capital representing the country, that city, Jerusalem, had to be told, behold, your king is coming. And while the city was moved, they were oblivious to who Jesus truly was and asked, who is this? Consequently, as Jesus drew near the city, he wept over it. Only if you had known, they didn't know. He was not properly welcomed or received there. And so he found lodging outside the city in that little town of Bethany. Now, what happens when Jesus comes to clean house? What happens when Jesus comes to clean house? That's the issue. What Jesus did in relation to Israel, he does in relationship to individual people. He comes to clean house and to claim what is rightfully his. And the response of people at this point is telling. It was telling in Jesus' day, it's telling today. Those who properly recognize him for who he is and receive him as Lord and Savior, they admit their need. They come to him on his terms. That's part of lordship, by the way. He is the Lord. He's in charge. But when he is rejected, you know what he does? He doesn't force his way. He simply leaves. And in this case, with the background of tears, as we see in Luke 19, we have this introductory statement in the Gospel of John. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But, but, contrast word, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. 
to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. A true saving faith believes on Christ for who he is as Lord and Savior and warmly welcomes him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, For this reason we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. Not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually works in you who believe. To this day, Christ is waiting for Israel to receive him, and to this day, they as a nation are hardened and not receptive. In fact, great, great many of the Jews are, are even atheists. They're culturally Jews. Shabbat, everything stops, but they don't really believe in the true God. As Peter pointed out in Acts 3, God awaits their repentance. And when they finally do come to repentance, then the times of kingdom refreshment will come. Jesus went on to say to them, and Lord willing, we'll get to this, but in Matthew chapter 23, See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you that you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what was being introduced to Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. And the the shout went out in the triumphal entry on the way. But Jerusalem was not responsive. There will be no lasting restoration for Israel until they finally come to recognize and appreciate Jesus for who he truly is as their divine Messiah. And there is no spiritual restoration for the individual until one comes to personally recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior. Augustine well said, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until they rest in thee. How true that is. Jesus comes to clean house, and those receptive, those repentant, those who put their faith in him, align with the truth of Jesus for who he is as Lord and Savior. So the question is, have you received Jesus as Lord and Savior? As many as receive them, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. What you do with Jesus today determines in the end how he will respond to you. If you turn away, he will one day say to you, depart from me. Now is the accepted time to receive him. And Jesus promises... The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. But you do have to come. And no one can do it for you. Jesus offered himself to the nation of Israel. And sadly, the nation of Israel officially, he officially presented himself. They officially rejected him through their leaders, as seen uh, in Matthew 21, as we have gone through. We'll pick it up there next time. Appropriately, thematically, he now goes on to talk about the cursing of the fig tree, which represents Israel in their state of desolation here. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.